Our Father, the very notion that there will be, a, there is a coming time when we will spend an eternity in your presence, that is the hope of every believer. And so, Father, uh, we want to practice that now. Uh, draw us into your presence by the power of the Holy Spirit and allow us the privilege of gazing on you in all of your beauty. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you. Follow as I read. I want to read you the first four verses of Colossians chapter 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also, then you also will appear with Him in glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. Gang, indeed, midlife is a, is a time of harvest. You know, those decisions that we made back in our 20s, even our teens, they have begun to bear fruit. You know, if, if childhood is the spring of our lives and, and youth is the summer of our lives, then midlife is the fall. You know, we spent a lot of time in our youth wondering how things were going to turn out. Well, now in midlife, we look back and find out how they turned out. We wondered how they would turn out, and now we know. Because midlife is a time where all those decisions that we made have now begun to bear the fruit of those decisions. Um, what I'm suggesting, folks, is midlife is a time in which we begin to wrestle with some things that perhaps we haven't wrestled with before. There is a, it, it seems to be marked with a, as a period of regret. That is, uh, regrets seem to multiply in midlife. Regrets about how my life is, um, how it's turned out, where it's headed. And, and a lot of that seems to pool, kind of collect, kind of uh, accumulate in, in this period known as midlife. And thus, uh, we experience what is called by sociologists a crisis, a midlife crisis. But it's, it's a crisis that I created. If I, um, if I experience a crisis in midlife, folks, I can't blame midlife. Midlife is a time frame. It's not a monster. Midlife produced nothing. Uh, the crisis, if there is one, is of my creation. That, um, that dullness that's in my marriage, that wasn't placed there by midlife. I did that. My, my disillusionment over my career, that wasn't brought on by midlife. I did that. The funk, the blues, the blahs that, 
that border on depression that, that seems to describe my life, that wasn't produced by a time frame. I did that. Uh, it's, um, it's in midlife, guys. It, it's in that period of our lives that I, that I begin to realize a few things that I hadn't really noticed before. Like, um, you know, I really wasn't as good a parent as I wanted to be. I, um, I wish I had gone back and gotten more education. You know, I could have married... Or, um, that was such a bad investment that I made. You know, um, I, I hope you'll take this rightly. I, I, I'm not trying to impress you. Um, I, I, it's, I'm just using this as a, hopefully something to which you can relate. But when I graduated from high school, um, I had several offers, scholarship offers, to play baseball. I wasn't a nationally known recruit of any kind, but there were several. I had several options. I I was offered a scholarship at Tennessee and and uh, Mississippi State and Ole Miss, University of Memphis, uh, Vanderbilt, uh, and I could have gone to the Naval Academy to um, to play baseball. But uh, as you know, I chose to go to the University. Or as some of you know, I chose to go to the University of Tennessee. Well, last spring um, I was in Nashville. I was visiting Steve and Jennifer Brown, who, was, who were caring for their very sick son. And uh, that night, after we had finished uh, our time together, we'd gone out to supper, and they had gone back to their apartment. And, and I was just on my own there in Nashville, and so I was walking around the campus of Vanderbilt, just by myself. And, um, and I was, oh, so impressed with Vanderbilt. I mean, it's... Uh, it was really Ivy league right there in Nashville. And I'd never been there. I mean, I'm 57 years old. I'd never been on the campus of Vanderbilt. And I, and I walked around uh, Vanderbilt and looked at those, that beautiful campus. And, and everybody, I mean, I think most of you know the, the, uh, the reputation that Vandy has for its academic excellence. And, and I thought, why didn't I go to Vanderbilt? I mean... My life would have been so much different if I'd have gone to Vanderbilt. I'm only saying, guys, that it's it's that kind of stuff that tends to occur in this period that we call midlife. We look back on the decisions that we made as teenagers or as 20-year-olds and they're, they've come to fruition. Those decisions have borne fruit. And we look back on those decisions that we made and we think, I could have had a V8. <laughs> I, I could have done it differently. Why didn't I go that way? Why did I go this way? And man, I wish I had that decision back. It's a period, gang... That is marked, among other things, but it's marked often by regrets. Now, what I want to do this morning is, is I want to take a look at how we got here. That is, if there is a crisis, how did we get into it? And then I want to suggest some steps that we could take to get out of it. 
if um, if we're in a thing that we created, that we produced, that we would call some kind of crisis. You know, um, one thing that occurs in in this period of our lives is that we things get clarified. Um, some of our motives. We begin to look at our hearts and uh, maybe for the first time and we discover that there's some things there that we're not real happy with. And, and yet coming to grips with, with uh, the kind of thinking that led me to where I am, that's a good thing, guys. It can be painful. Um, but, but exposing delusions that, uh, that, have, that have led my life, that's a good thing. But looking back on them can, can, um, can not only be a good thing, it can also be tear-stained. As, as I look back on some of the things that, that, that I decided and now they've borne fruit in this stage of my life. And, and um, yeah, it's a good thing to expose falsehood wherever it exists. But when I discover it, it's a, it's a mercy to discover it, yes. But it can also be hard. To dig around. That's what we call this archaeology. Dig around in, in my own life and find out some things that I'm, that I'm not real happy about and not real proud of. I come face to face with some, some things that I used to tell myself that, um, that brought me to where I am today. Let, let me give you some examples. For instance... Things, uh, by the way, I didn't have to draw these out of your life. I had plenty of resources looking at my own. But um, you, you, some of the things that we used to, kind of convictions that, uh, upon which we based our lives, you know, we, we operated based on these things. For instance, uh, things like um, the problem really isn't mine. The problem isn't mine, it's my wife's. Uh, it's my jobs, or it's my boss, it's my mother, it's my kids, it's my life. It's anybody but me. The problem is not me. You know, years ago, uh, before World War II, um, the London Times included an editorial uh, and it was written by their leading editorial. And the, and the editorial's entitled, the title of the editorial was this. What's wrong with the world? And so a lot of pundits wrote in into that editorialist to explain what's wrong with the world. And of course, Hitler was looming and all that business. And, and G.K. Chesterton, a name that some of you might uh, re- recognize. G.K. Chesterton wrote into the London Times and he said, I know what's the matter with the world. The problem is me. You know, guys, that's the way the Apostle Paul would talk. He said, I'll tell you what's the matter. The, the, the problem is me. I mean, if, if you read Romans 7, that's what you're going to find the Apostle Paul doing. Paul locates the struggle inside of himself. Gang, it is regret producing to admit that I'm really not the father that I wanted to be. I'm really not the father that I want you to think I am. 
And all the blame is mine. It's nobody else's. It's mine. Or um, the reason that my career didn't take off is because I refused to be a team player. I did that. Nobody else is to blame for that. Or um, the reason that my family struggles financially is because of unwise investments that I made or unwise career moves. That's my doing. Gang, um, what I'm saying is, is that one of the delusions that, that uh, gets exposed, at least one of the many, in a, in a period like this, is that the, the source of the issue is not outside me. It's inside me. And, and one of the reasons that I'm in a crisis, if I am in one, is because I shirk responsibility that I, I can't put on anybody but me. And, and part of the solution out of the crisis is assuming appropriate responsibility. Gang, is it not true that a deepening awareness of my sin is what God so often uses to draw us into a greater dependence on Him and a, and a greater enjoyment of grace, then I want to suggest to you that's a good place to start in this whole crisis. It's a good place to start. That is, the recognition of appropriate responsibility. I am where I am not because of my wife or my husband. I am where I am not because of my job or my mother or, you know, my neighbors or my... I am where I am because of me. The, the, the location, the, the point of origin is within me. That's, that's a hard thing, guys. To come to the conclusion, if I, if I, didn't, if I didn't get to where I wanted to be career-wise or family-wise or father-wise or mother-wise, I got nobody to blame but me. Another, another delusion that uh, kind of a, a principle upon which you operate, or at least some of us have, um, was, the, was the idea that little sins won't hurt you as long as you avoid the biggies. I mean, uh, avoid those big things and, and you'll be fine. And so we're okay with giving away little bits of our heart. Just little bits, while at the same time, of course, avoiding the biggies. I've never been in a porno shop, and I've never been on the Internet in looking at pornography. But I am, oh, so envious of others. You know, guys, I think one of the, the, what we would call a little thing that is epidemic in midlife is envy. Uh, you know, my dreams didn't materialize, but yours did. And uh, we, uh, we think that somehow God got the wrong address. You know, all that prosperity that you're enjoying was supposed to be mine. All the, all the wrong guys are winning and all the good guys like me are getting hammered. 
you know, folks, envy is, is more than just sadness in the face of my unfulfilled dreams. Envy is, is not only being angry that I don't have something, it's also being angry that you do. I'm angry about my life, and I'm angry about yours too. <laughs> not only am I upset that I didn't get it, but I'm also further upset that you did. Envy will control you. Uh, control your eyes. That is, you begin to uh, notice all the success and the prosperity and the, the possessions and the joy that others might have. And um, it, it, it'll, it'll cause you to be sad when you ought to be happy. It, it, it robs you of an ability to, to love your neighbor because, my goodness, he's your competitor. But um, over time, I grow bitter and, and, and I say things like, um, well, you know, if, if that's the way that God treats people who avoid the biggies, you know, I, I did all the right things and what do I get? Nothing. And, and my sins were little things. I didn't do any of those biggies. Gang, midlife is often a time of accounting. And, and we wake up one day in the midst of a funk and we wonder, how did I get here? I, I didn't commit adultery. I, uh, I stayed out of porno shops. Uh, I didn't ever visit Danny's. Uh, I went to church and I gave 10% of my money. For what? Ooh. Those little sins can produce a whole lot more ugliness than you thought. Those little things can produce an angry man or a bitter woman. And, and you know what they say about bitterness? No, not what they say. What, what the Bible says about bitterness. Uh, bitterness is... Something that will defile everybody that's around you. So, that delusion that if I, if I just avoid the little one, or the big ones, I can get away with the little one. That's, that's costly. And when you, you recognize it, you reap the fruit of it in this period. There's another thing that, that came to mind. Um, and this is... That I told myself at age 35 that I was pretty much over that. I, I told myself that I was pretty much beyond that problem or beyond that issue. And then I wake up at 45 and I, I'm an angry man. Or I wake up as a woman at age 50 and I thought, well, I settled that back when I was 35. And I find that there's another man that's awfully appealing to me. We, we declared victory too soon. And we realize it in midlife. You remember when George Bush um, flew in on that jet and landed on the carrier and, and uh, announced that uh, the Iraq war was over? Oh my, was that a mistake. <laughs> Wasn't it? Politically, um, militarily. Announcing premature victory. 
Well, guys, it's just as big a mistake for us. And we, we come to grips with it. We face it in this period that, um, that I realize I, I, I have not won that battle. It's still raging. And, and I, uh, I wonder, have I made any progress in the last 15 years? Or, or has my soul somehow been in neutral? Well, it's probably been in neutral because we declared victory way too soon. Now, guys, uh, what I'm saying is that in this period, this time frame, we come to grips with some of those things that really have borne some bitter fruit and it, and it doesn't come to harvest until this period called midlife. So, so we find ourselves in a crisis. What can I do with all of my regrets? Will they become a weight around my neck and, and dragging me into some kind of pit of remorse and joylessness and, and even depression? That seems to be somewhat epidemic in this period as well. Guys, this can be a moment of great redemptive value. A great time of personal honesty that can be crushing or paralyzing or it can become the beginning of a, of a remarkably new phase of redemptive history in my life. A, a time of personal growth and change. How? And that's what I want to leave you with. Four, four steps that we might want to take if, um, if this is somehow descriptive of us. Four things that will maybe lead us out of this thing that, that we created in the first place. Four things. Let me mention them to you and we're finished. First of all, guys, 1 John 1.9 contains a very sweet promise of hope. 1 John 1.9 is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, guys, what I'm pleading for is not some kind of... Um, yeah, yeah, we're all sinners. What I'm really pleading for is perhaps for the first time a moment of honesty. You know, the text says, um, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Uh, the term, the, the Greek word confess is the Greek word homologeo. Easily translated, it means to say the same thing as. That is, confession is saying the same thing about it that God says about it. And maybe for the first time, we're going to look at our lives and we're going, to, we're going to call it what God calls it. It wasn't sound financial planning. It was greed. Homologato. It wasn't being fashion conscious. It was utter carnality. Homologato. It's covetousness. It's materialism. That's what it is. It's not all these other things that I've smeared over it. What, what I'm saying, guys, is one of the first steps out is homologeo. We just call it what God calls it. And the sweet promise that's contained in that verse is this. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ... 
I can come out of hiding. And I can be honest with myself and with Him because I am liberated to call it without fear the darkest, the ugliest, the most selfish of all my choices. I can face it. And I am promised forgiveness. Let me, let me quote the text to you again. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have I wasted time? I mean, years. <laughs> sure I have. But that's... that's there is a, a forgiveness promised to me. I've been digging in the same dark hole for way too long. Some of us, some of us wasted years of our life drinking too much alcohol. Then let's stop digging in that hole. Was I guilty of idolatry? You bet I was. Was, um, was I uh, discontent? Envious? Covetous? Yeah. And in the face of that piece of redemptive honesty, there is a glorious promise for us. If we homologeo our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm saying because of the finished work of Christ, guys, we can be honest. We, we don't have to live with delusions. We can, we can start with this glorious, liberating promise and be honest with Him and call it what it is. That's the first step. Secondly, change your dreams. You know, guys, um, let's do this. Let's make the next 40 better than the first 40. What do you say? Let's look forward to, to pursuing a better dream. Let's ask God to... to to show you the work that He has for you. Let's, let's use this time as a, as a stimulant, as a propellant to get close to the living God. Let's change our goal from being the CEO, which we didn't make. Let's change our goal, our dream, to being faithful. What do you say? You know, my wife, oh, <laughs> she was told all her life by her daddy, like some of you daddies tell your little girls. And we laugh about it. But Susie was told by her daddy all her, all her life that she was going to be Miss America. She made it. At least in our home. <laughs> uh, she didn't make it. <laughs> so you didn't make it, guys. Change the dream. Let's... let's Let's use this time not to dig around in the same hole. Let's, let's, let's accept this forgiveness as God's invitation to a new life and let's change our goals. I'm going to be faithful with the rest of the, the lot, years that God gives me. Of all, above all else, whatever God, whatever God, I'm going to, I see where I got there. I, 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 I sit, I, I have been promised forgiveness. And now I'm, I'm getting out of this hard, dark hole that I've been digging in. I'm going to dig a new one. I'm, I'm changing dreams. Um, 
I am going to put my hands to a plow. It'll be a different plow. And I ain't looking back. Because I'm going to, I'm going to make the next 40 better than the first 40. I'm going, to, I'm going to look back at 80 and I'm going to have less regret than I do at 40. Because I am, I'm going to change dreams. I'm going to replace one set of dreams with another set. Number three, embrace God's timing. Well, let, let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, there is an interesting statement that is made in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, um, and um, he was born under the law um, uh, by a woman in the fullness of time. It's, it's referring to Jesus, and it's saying that Jesus was born under the law in the womb of Mary, it doesn't use her name, but in the fullness of time. That's what I wanted you to get, in the fullness of time. Here's my point. God does everything in the fullness of time. He's always on time. He's never late. I'm late, but he's not. Folks, it, it is next to impossible to not look back over your life and question God's timing. I wish I had known that 20 years ago. Or um, if only I had heard this 20 years ago before I made the decision to marry him. Or um, where was my pastor when I made that decision? I wasted so many years. This sword that way. Gang, we can take responsibility for what we did, appropriate the forgiveness that is available to us, all the while enjoying the, the, the truth that God didn't come to us a minute too late. That conviction that got us out of that and into this and over, that was always on time. Yeah, yeah, I wish I'd have known that. But I'm telling you, when God comes to us, He comes to us lovingly and kindly and graciously and mercifully, but He always comes on time. I don't know why you spent those 10 years doing that. I, I, I don't know why I wasted those 20. I don't know that. I simply know that God does, does things in the fullness of time. Always. Everything He does, He does in the fullness of time. So, embrace that. That what is going on is perfectly timed by a sovereign God. He didn't come a minute too late. And then finally, which is my fourth, I, I, I wonder if you wondered, when is he ever going to talk about the text? Well, now. Gang, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, is one of the classic. If I could recommend four verses for you to memorize, it would be these four. Um... Verse 3 is so incredibly jam-packed with marvelous redemptive truth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Oh my, ladies and gentlemen, if, if, if the people of God could wrap our minds around that truth, we would be different people. But the, but the point is, here's, here's the, step four. We set our minds on things that are above. Guys, there is a day coming. Um, a day in which not only will I be rescued from a broken world, but I'm also going to be rescued from my own brokenness. 
there's coming a day that there is going to be no regrets. No words to take back, no, no job that was done poorly, no sin that I have to untangle. You who belong to Christ, keep your eyes fixed on eternity. Set your mind on things above. Act as if you're a fourth grader with three days left until summer vacation begins. Because it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. This is not a time to sit down and take a nice warm bath in my own self-pity. It's a time to, to accept the forgiveness, change my dreams, embrace His timing, and look forward to eternity. I want to read you something that Paul Tripp said, which, who has been very helpful in, in this whole series. But he says this, just two sentences. Whether you're aware of it or not, every moment of regret is a longing for eternity. Every instance of remorse is a cry for a better place. Every time you feel guilt and shame, your heart reaches out for a day when they will be wiped away. That day's coming, my brother and sister in Christ. A day of no more regret, no more tears, no more sin. My hope would be is that the excitement of that day would consume you enough to lift you out of this trough that we call midlife crisis. I close you, I leave this behind. This is a glorious day if you're in Christ, the day that we await. If you are here today and you are not, out, not inside Christ, it's not a glorious day for you. I, I pray that you would consider that. And um, ask the questions that need to be asked as we all prepare for the day of no regret. Let's quit. Our Father, I pray that you'll use these babblings of mine to, uh, to bolster your people. That you would shore up our flagging confidence and our flagging joy. That you would fill our cup with a new sense of rejoicing. That we're forgiven. That... Um, you, you, didn't, you didn't trip on the way to us. You were right on time. So now we can change our dreams and await a summer vacation beyond our wildest expectations. It's only a few days off. A day where we'll be owned and embraced by a good and glorious Savior. I, I pray, Lord, that uh, if you've brought people here today who have not yet met this Savior of ours, might they not start their automobiles until they have come face to face with the claims of Jesus Christ over them. Do that, Father, for your own glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.